if you haven't been here, I, I want to refresh on where we've been in this series. Uh, so the first week, uh, we looked at the story of the woman at the well. All the stories are ones that are coming out of John, because John talks a lot about life and eternal life. And so we're, we're saying John talks a lot about what it means for us to have the good life, and maybe exposes some of the lies we believe about having the good life. And so we looked at the woman at the well and said, she is relentlessly chasing after what she thinks is going to give her the good life, and it's not satisfying her. She's relentlessly chasing after what she thinks will satisfy her, and it keeps leaving her empty and more broken. And then Jesus shows up and says, you need to find satisfaction in me. You need to worship me. That's where the good life is. The second week, Brandon talked about Jesus feeding the 5,000, far more than 5,000, like 15,000. And he talked about how the good life is not found in the comforts we consume. The way he put it that, that I think said it so well was, good things are not the good life. That if we think good things are the good life, we may come to Jesus and we may like him and we may enjoy him and kind of stick around as long as we're getting what we want. But as soon as we don't get what we want, we bail out. I don't want anything to do with him anymore. I'm not getting the good things. Just as the crowd said, you're not going to feed us anymore. You're not giving us the free meal. All right, we're done. And then last week, Brandon talked about Pilate and Jesus and talked about how Pilate is this person who thinks he has to control everything to have the good life, that it's all on his shoulders. So he runs into Jesus, and he's like, I, I don't think he's guilty, but, but if I let him go, the crowd's going to blow up, and, and I might lose my job, and, and things might get chaotic. I've got to control it. And Jesus simply looks at him and says, Pilate, you don't have any power to control this life apart from what I've given you. Your control is an illusion. Right? And so I loved how it was brought out. All the things we tend to get anxious and worried about often surround the idea that we're more in control than we really are. It would be far wiser for us just to surrender control to someone who is loving, powerful, and good. And this morning, I want to finish up the series looking at the story of Nicodemus. And I want to draw out the big idea that the good life is received, not achieved. The good life is received, not achieved. I grew up with this uh, great program in elementary school. Some of you may know the program. I don't know if they still have it. Uh, if you have kids, you may know. It was a program called Book It. Anyone do Book It? Yeah? Book It was fantastic. You know why? Because I could read Mr. Popper's Penguins and then get a free pizza out of it. It was great. Right? So here's how Book It worked. Book It was, I got some card, I don't quite remember, uh, but, but I got a card and I would check off either how many hours I read or how many books, I forget which, but eventually once I got that card filled up, my family would load up into the van, we'd go to our local pizza hut, I would present it to the employee, and then I would get the reward, a personal pan pizza. Right? You know, you've had this before. Right? It's only like the size of one slice, but there's something about it's my personal pizza that makes an eight-year-old think this is the good life, right? I found it. And, and so in that, I put in the work, I put in the effort, I did the achievement, and as a result, I got the reward. And I think sometimes we can view the good life in that way, that if I achieve enough, if I work hard enough, if I really earn it, then I get the good life. 
based on all that I've done and all the achievements I can put behind my name and behind my reputation. And in the story of Nicodemus, Jesus is going to take a stick of dynamite, put it in that idea, and explode it. And say, no, that's absolutely not true. The good life is received, not achieved. So I want to pray for us before we look at John 3. And one of the things that we've been praying again and again is that God would help us to see that his spirit would help us to really see who Jesus is and really understand who he is and really believe in him because there's this danger we see over and over and over again in John where people come to Jesus and they see him and they know him and they sit under his teaching, but they miss it. They miss it. And so one of our prayers again and again and again has been that we wouldn't miss it and that God's spirit would help us not to miss it. So let me pray for us And then we'll be in John chapter 3. God, we need you every time we open up the Bible. There are certain things that we can understand if we study it and and draw out the academic side of it. But God, if we want to come in contact with you and want to know you and want to be drawn to worship you and to repentance and faith, then we desperately need your spirit to work and to speak And so I just ask and beg that you do that this morning, that your spirit would speak and move and work in ways that I didn't plan for or anticipate, but in ways that you freely do it. And so I ask you to do that. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, John chapter 3. We're going to read the whole story and then kind of walk back through it piece by piece. Here it is. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us, for your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible, Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. The first thing I want to ask this morning, and hopefully answer a little bit, is uh, who was Nicodemus? What type of person was he? I think that's a, a good thing for us to know in light of this story and Jesus' interactions with him. Who, who was Nicodemus? What would have he been like today if he was sitting right in the middle of our church? 
Nicodemus was a well-respected figure among the community. He, he was a Pharisee. He was a good person on the surface. Other people would have looked at him and said, that's someone we should be like. He's a good guy. Right? That's the first thing. Second thing, he's an influential and powerful leader. It says he's a, a member of the ruling council, which, which people take to believe the, the 70 or 72 person uh, council of Israel called the Sanhedrin. And, and they were responsible for making some of the biggest decisions and rulings in, is, in Jesus' day in Israel. So Nicodemus had a voice and a vote in some of the most important things happening in his country in the day. Number three, he was a knowledgeable and popular teacher. Jesus refers to him as the well-respected teacher among Israel. Like, people went to hear Nicodemus speak. When he went around the country, people showed up to hear him speak. When he preached a sermon, people took notes, and they loved how he opened up the scriptures. They loved hearing Nicodemus speak to them. He was a good teacher, preacher. And then lastly, number four, he was wealthy. We get a hint of that in this passage where we see he's on the Sanhedrin because most of the people on that probably would have been wealthy. But we also learn it later in another passage we're going to look at this morning. He was a wealthy man, right? Well-respected, influential and powerful, uh, good teacher who people like to listen to, and wealthy. He's got the good life, right? Like on the surface, just like Pilate last week, he has what we so often identify with. He's got the good life. I mean, people would have looked at Nicodemus and said, this is what I want my son or daughter to be like one day. They, they would have wanted their daughters to marry him. They, they might have talked about their grown son secretly thinking, why can't he be more like Nicodemus? Because Every box they had to check off as far as someone who made it, Nicodemus checked. If there's a who, who, who's who in Israel at this time, Nicodemus is at the top, near the top, as this person. So why is he coming to Jesus? This kind of wild card, itinerant preacher at the time. Why does he show up and, and talk to Jesus? When all the other Pharisees just kind of stand at a distance, like, we don't want anything to do with this guy. He's crazy. Why does Nicodemus show up and talk to Jesus? I think it's because despite all of Nicodemus' achievements, all these great things he's done in his life, he still knows there's something missing. And he sees in this Jesus, based on the signs he's doing and how he's teaching, he has something that I don't have. And I want to know what that is, and I want to know how I get that. Like, maybe this has even happened in your own life, where part of you becoming a Christian was perhaps you saw other people around you who had something about them, something about their life that you're like, I don't have that, and I want that. That's, that's part of my story. A, a friend who I knew before he was a Christian, he became a Christian, and afterwards I met him, like, whoa, there's something different. Well, I'm missing something that he's got. What is it? And so Nicodemus, despite all his achievements, realizes he's still missing something important. And he thinks Jesus can tell him what it is, I think. And so he goes to him. This is the first point I want to draw out. That that our best achievements in this life are only temporary. That they don't deliver the good life. Our best achievements, the things that we take the most pride in, are only temporary. Sure, they provide a rush. Like, no doubt Nicodemus felt good when when he taught and a crowd responded well to him. No doubt he felt good when he got appointed to the Sanhedrin, like he made it to the top. 
And yet I would argue that rush that we feel when we achieve some goal, achieve something great, fades, whether in 24 hours or 24 years, and we have to move on to the next achievement. Because our best achievements are only temporary. Here's another way to think about it. Every trophy ends up in the dumpster, right? Eventually, every trophy, I would argue, ends up in the dumpster. So when I was younger, I played roller hockey at the Gap Roller Hockey League, like almost everyone else my age. Uh, and I won several trophies. I can't take credit for them. I think I just got put on good teams. Uh, but, but I won some first-place trophies, second-place trophies, all-star trophies, undefeated season trophy, thanks to Dave Ulrich. Uh, and so they went on to my trophy shelf back at home. Do you know how many people ever asked about those trophies? I, none that I can remember. Like, no girls were ever impressed by my roller hockey trophies, right? I don't think that's why Brie married me. But, and, and do you know where those trophies are now? Because I, I don't know. I have no idea. Like, they might be in my parents' attic. They might be in my basement somewhere. But really, they're collecting dust until the day they're going to go in the dumpster. Because I'm almost positive my kids aren't going to want to hang on to those someday. Every trophy ends up in the dumpster. Every achievement we ever have in this life is only temporary. See, we tend to think if we achieve our dreams and achieve something great, then we'll have this good life we're longing for. And yet it's often when people achieve their dreams that they realize how empty their life has been. It, this happens a lot among sports athletes, some of the best, I would argue. There's a couple of popular quotes that you may have even already heard. But two of the best quarterbacks in our day, Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers, both expressed this sentiment after winning the Super Bowl. Tom Brady, after three Super Bowls and multiple MVPs, uh, I'm just going to paraphrase him. You can look up the quote. But essentially says, I've got the dream. I've got the life that many people want. But I think, God, there, this can't be all there is. I've still got to be missing something. There's something else out there. There has to be. Aaron Rodgers, who if you follow his story, worked extremely hard to prove himself, to get out of the shadow of someone else and to win a Super Bowl. And he got there. He achieved it all. And he admits being on the bus ride out of the stadium and starting to feel like, is this really all there is? I hope I don't just do this. Like, see how quick our greatest achievements can fade on us? And so the good life can't possibly be in the things that we achieve and the goals we set out to fulfill in our lives. And, and I think we believe that. I think at Keystone we would say, most of us would say that, yes, the good life is not found in my achievements and what I accomplish. But then I would ask, why is it so often that we only feel valuable when we're accomplishing something great? When we're doing something great? When we've, we've got a goal that we're chasing after? Why is it that we always have to be doing stuff, something sometimes to feel valuable? Why is it that our worth sometimes jumps and drops with our successes and failures? That I feel great when I'm succeeding and I feel horrible when I failed. Right? Isn't that believing that achievement is the good life? Why is it that sometimes our kids only feel affirmed and loved and praised when they succeed? Doesn't that communicate the good life is found in their achievements? Right? See, see we, we say we believe this, but I wonder if we always live that way, or if we still buy into the lie that if we achieve enough, we'll have the good life. Nicodemus realizes, all my achievements, I'm still missing something. All right, I've got to go to Jesus. So he goes, and he asks for help. And Jesus is going to point out to him, Nicodemus, 
the good life can't be earned. That's like just what he's going to drive across to Nicodemus. I, th- I think we need to see Nicodemus is not like our typical Pharisee. Because I don't know about you, but when I think Pharisee, I think some like pretentious, stuck-up, prejudiced, know-it-all. But Nicodemus, here he is coming to Jesus, asking for some help. Jesus, I know you're a teacher from God. I know I'm missing something. Help me out here. What do you have that I don't? It's humbling to ask for help. We have to admit we don't have it all together. And here's Nicodemus saying, I don't have it all figured out. Jesus, help me. Right? Jesus, likely Jesus was younger than Nicodemus too. Think about that. How hard is it for us to go to someone who's younger than us for advice? So Nicodemus is not our typical Pharisee. And here he is coming to Jesus. Jesus, help me. What am I missing? What, what am I not doing? What is it you have that I don't? Do I, do I need to give away more money? Do I need to take a vow of celibacy? Do, do I need to do something? What is it that you have that I don't? Give me some help here. And yet Jesus' response to him is like so shocking. Especially when we look at this compared to the woman at the well. If you remember the story of the woman at the well, Jesus is like, he initiates the conversation. He keeps it going. He's very interested in her. Nicodemus shows up. Jesus, we know you're a good teacher from God. And he's like, you need to be born again. I don't know exactly if that's how he said it. Like I echo, echo what Brandon said last week. If I wish I had a videotape sometimes that I could see and hear exactly how this was. But it seems like he's just like, he doesn't even seem to let Nicodemus finish his thought. And just like, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. That's what you need. Right? Which is shocking. Very shocking. And I want us to ask and answer a question to see a little bit of how shocking this is. Uh, It's a question I call WWKD. And simply, what would Kyle do in this scenario, right? Not a good uh, question if you want advice. Not going to end up on a bracelet anytime soon. But it helps us to see, or at least helps me to see, how different and better Jesus is than me and how sinful I am still, right? So, Nicodemus, if he walks into our auditorium and he sits down on a Sunday morning, here's probably what he's like. He's probably like a United States senator who's also an elder at Keystone Church and who's one of the best teachers we have and wealthy. What would Kyle do if that person walked into Keystone? I want to become his friend. I want to impress him. I want him on my side. And once I've got him on my side, I want to see what doors open up for me because he can get in places I can't. He's got a platform that I don't, and he's got a power and money to back the things that I might want to do. And the last thing I'm going to do is say anything that might offend or upset this guy. I don't want him angry at me or offended or upset and throwing his weight against me. And yet, what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't care about the platform he might open. He doesn't care about the wealth he might have. He doesn't care about Nicodemus backing him, and so he just cuts to the point. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Nicodemus, you're coming to me asking for help. You need to see how helpless you are. This good life you're searching for, it's not in a new diet. It's not in a new moral teaching. It's not in a new philosophy. It's not in anything you can do at all. It's in what God does for you. You need to be born again. And Nicodemus, we laugh at his response, right? Because he's there and he's like, Mama's not going to have that. Be born again? Like, she's not going to let, even if it's possible, I'm not crawling back up into the womb and coming back out. That's not going to happen. Kind of laugh at him. But I, I think Nicodemus gets what Jesus is saying. I think he gets it's a metaphor, but he's just saying, that's impossible. 
can't do that. Jesus, you, you can teach an old dog new tricks, but you can't make an old golden retriever a young poodle. That's impossible. He's like, that's absolutely right. It is humanly impossible for you to have the good life that you're looking for. You can't do it. God has to do it. And he's got to do it through a work of his spirit, right? You need to be born again. You need to be born of the spirit. It's something he does in your life, and he gives you the good life. Something God does, not what we do. See, Nicodemus comes to Jesus asking, what extra step should he take? He's already taken a lot of steps. What's that one last step he needs? And Jesus looks at him and says, you don't even have feet. Right? Like, what, what more step do I need to take? I've taken a lot of, you don't even have feet. It, it's not going to help if I tell you a step to take because you don't have feet to walk with. And on the surface, well, not on the surface, just in general, this is deeply offending, but I think it's also deeply freeing. It's deeply offending because here's what it says to me and you. Every single thing that we take pride in that we've done Every achievement I've ever had, everything I've succeeded in, every accomplishment I've done with my life doesn't get me one step closer to the good life. All the work I've put in, how hard I've tried to earn it, everything I've done to try to be a a good person but also gain this good life doesn't get me one step closer. I can't do it. And none of that matters. Everything I put my identity in, my worth in, none of it matters. I'm not born again. That's deeply offensive. But I think it's also deeply freeing. And here's why. Because if we don't have to earn the good life, and if it's not in our achievement, then we don't have to run around taking credit for every success we have. We don't have to run around making sure everyone recognizes where we've succeeded and how great we are because it doesn't matter. That's not the good life. We don't have to replay every accomplishment over and over and over and over again in our head saying, this is what makes me important and special because that's not the good life. A success is a success, but we don't have to constantly make sure everyone gives us the credit for it. That's tiring. And on the flip side, we don't have to be destroyed and consumed by when we fail. Right? Like, because failure is just a failure. It doesn't mean that we're not good enough. It doesn't mean that we haven't achieved this good life. It's just a failure. And so it doesn't have to overwhelm us and consume us. I wonder how many of us in our heads, we replay over and over and over our successes on one hand to say how great we are. And on the other hand, replay over and over and over our failures to say how terrible we are at times. And if we're doing that, that points out we still think the good life is something we achieve, something I have to succeed at, something I have to gain on my own, and if I fail and screw up, I don't get it. And so I I think it's deeply freeing for Jesus to say, Nicodemus, there's nothing you can do. You can't earn it. You have to be born again. God has to do it. And so none of your successes or failures contribute to this good life. And so Nicodemus responds in verse 9. He's like, all right, how can this be? How can this happen then? God does it to me, but but how does that work? Help me to figure this out. And Jesus' response comes in verses 14 and 15, where he's going to say, you've got to depend on my achievement and what I'm going to do. Dependence is a good thing, he's saying. That's the third point this morning. Uh, But before he gets there, I love that Jesus is going to kind of like 
show his credentials for a second. He's like, Nicodemus, you're this respected teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? Why not? And then he's like, well, let me just cite my sources really quick so you know where I'm coming from. It's like, I didn't look this up on Wikipedia. I'm the only one who came down from heaven, and so you can trust me. That when I talk about the good life, you can trust I know what I'm talking about because I'm the only one who's come down from there. So he cites his sources, I am the source. And then he lays out for Nicodemus, here's what needs to happen for you to be born again. It's my achievement that matters. And he does it by pointing to an odd story in the Old Testament. Did you catch that in verses 14 and 15? He points back to Numbers 21, and I think I have it up on the screen Uh, I'm not going to read through it, but I just want to summarize it really quick because I think it's important for us to get. Uh, The Israelites are walking through the wilderness. And uh, one one of the interesting things about the Israelites in the wilderness is over and over and over and over again, God's trying to teach them to be dependent on him. Like he's putting them through all these trials and everything in the wilderness because again and again and again he's trying to say, you need to be dependent on me because you're going to get to this land where you have everything you need and your temptation is going to be, we don't need God anymore. And so I want to teach you, now you need to be dependent on me. And time and time again, the Israelites complain and say, God's not giving us the good life, we need something else. So here they're walking through the wilderness and essentially they're complaining that there's not any Texas roadhouses along the way. Right? We're, we're sick of what we're eating, give us something better, God. And God's heard this again and again and again, and so this time he disciplines them. See how he, he sends snakes among the camp, poisonous snakes, and some of them get bit, and some of them start to die. Side note, uh, if this happened to me, I would stop complaining really fast. Th- think about it, if every time I grumbled, a rattlesnake showed up in my house, i will stop complaining real f- or I'm going to be dead, I don't know which. But uh, message received, and, and the Israelites received the message as well. They're like, okay. We repent. We're sorry, God. Forgive us. Now, show us grace. What can we do? We're dying here. Help us. And so God tells Moses, hey, take some bronze, form the snake, put it on a pole in the middle of the camp, and anyone who looks at this snake can be healed and live. It's kind of weird. Look at this snake, be healed and live. So why does Jesus point back to this odd story? Well, in this story, anyone who gets bit is helpless. Anyone who gets bit by this poisonous snake is helpless. It doesn't matter if they have 500 lambs or one lamb. They're done. It doesn't matter if they're jacked or they have a dad bod. They just got bit by a poisonous snake. They're helpless. It doesn't matter if they graduated summa cum laude. I looked that up to know how to pronounce it in case you're wondering. Or if they dropped out of high school. They're dead if they don't get help. They're helpless. None of their achievements matter in this case. And the only thing that does matter is if they would look at this snake that God's provided and be healed and have new life. And Jesus points to this story. He's like, you're just as helpless, Nicodemus. You're just as helpless, Kyle. You're just as helpless as the Israelites were in this situation. And the only thing that can give you the good life, the only achievement that matters is the fact that I'm going to be like a snake put on a stick in front of a crowd, and that by looking to that achievement, you might get life. That that when you see me writhing like a snake on that cross, and you see that that's the only thing that you need for the good life, the only achievement you need, that's when you become born again. 
That's how the Spirit works in you to make you born again. That's when you realize all the achievements in your life don't really matter, that this is the only thing that truly does matter. So Jesus is saying, you want the good life? You need to be completely dependent on me and my achievements. To be dependent is a good thing. To be dependent on someone else, I think, gets a bad reputation because it means we're weak. A child is dependent on his or her parents because he or she is weak. A patient is dependent on a doctor because he's weak. And so we look at dependence and we think, all right, to grow up, you should become more and more independent, right? You, you should be able to provide for yourself. You shouldn't have to rely on anyone else. It's good to be able to become independent. And, and while that's good advice for, like, growing up physically and taking responsibility, it's horrible advice if we apply that to our spiritual life as well. If we think that in the beginning we need to be dependent on God and then to grow spiritually means we become less and less and less and less dependent on him, we're actually going to miss the good life and we're going to start depending on ourselves again rather than on him. There's this quote uh, that I read this past year that stuck out to me from a guy named Tony Ranke and he says this, Every day sinners are still animated by the empty promise of reaching some level of self-sufficiency where God will finally be rendered unnecessary. Every day we're driven by some level of self-sufficiency. I want to depend only on myself, and I want to get to a place where I don't need God anymore. Do you feel that at all? Because I feel that a lot of times. This feeling of, I don't want to have to need God so much. I want to get to a place where I can depend more on myself and not so much on him to be self-sufficient. And yet, if the only achievement that matters in this life is what Jesus has done on that cross, then it makes far more sense for me to depend completely on God. It means that for me to grow spiritually and to have more life is to be more and more and more and more dependent on God, not less and less and less. Anything, Anything that makes us more dependent on God, I would say, is a good thing. Anything that forces us to our knees, God, we depend on you, we need you, help us here, is a good thing. By the way, that's part of like why we keep talking about this revival. Because we're saying we're putting aside a week, but if God doesn't show up, then nothing's really going to happen. That we need God to show up, we're dependent on him to do something this week, and so we're just laying that before him. Anything that causes us to be more dependent on God is a good thing. And on the flip side, any time we get to a place where we think we need God less, we're taking a step into enemy territory. Anytime we get to a place where we think, I've got this, I don't need God anymore, we're stepping into dangerous territory. We're giving up the good life and instead thinking it matters based off what I can do. I just need to be self-dependent. Nicodemus, I don't think, gets this right in the moment. He doesn't quite get the message in the moment of, okay, I need to depend on Jesus' achievement and not my own. But he does get it later on. And the reason we know that is because he shows up again, twice in John. But I want to w- look at the last time in John 19. John 19, 38 through 42. Context for this. Uh, Jesus is dead. It's the day after he was crucified. No one is expecting him to be 
risen back to life at this point. No one has that expectation going into the third day. And so this is the second day, and this is where we see a familiar figure show up that we've heard of before. After Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. Okay, so we know about Joseph from the other three Gospels. We've heard about him. But here John tells us there was someone else there. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with spices and long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, I think for many of us, we've heard that story before, and so it's just familiar. It's like, okay, they were burying Jesus, big deal, good for them. And we miss how radical what they're doing is. So first of all, they're giving up a lot of money. This is where we learn Nicodemus is pretty wealthy. Uh, Joseph gives up some of his land and a tomb for Jesus to be buried in. Nicodemus gives up 75 pounds of these expensive spices, which would have been a lot of money. Some people look at that and they say, the, the only way that this amount would have been given is in the burial of a king. I don't know if that's true or not, but if it is, it's interesting to see that that's Nicodemus' view of Jesus. Either way, he's giving up money to bury this guy. They're doing a task that's far below them, right? They're these powerful, influential men. They're taking care of a dead, dirty, bloody, stinky body and laying it down. But more important than either of those things, they're taking a massive risk. They're putting everything they've ever achieved on the line. Why? Because the council they're a part of a day earlier just said this guy is a criminal and needs to die. Think about that for a moment. Nicodemus was on that council. He might have had friends on that council who voted yes to Jesus' death. And now the day afterwards, Nicodemus and Joseph are taking care of this criminal's body and putting it in a nice grave and putting perfume all over it. What's going to happen when word gets back to the council that they've done this? I would guess people are going to call for them to be kicked off. Get, Get out of here. They can't be on this council anymore. Everything that Nicodemus has achieved up to this moment, he's putting on the line when he takes care of Jesus' body because he might lose it all. Why? What does he stand to gain from this? Absolutely nothing. Jesus is dead. He lost at this point in everyone's eyes. What does he stand to lose from it? Almost everything. Nicodemus is joining up on the losing side at this moment. Like everyone wants to be on a winner's side. Nobody wants to be on the loser's side. I'm guessing there was a lot of people that became Cavaliers fans the day LeBron came back to Cleveland. I don't think anyone became a fan the day he left for L.A. Because they went from a winner to a loser. Nicodemus is joining up on the losing side and risking everything he's achieved to make that happen. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Because I think Nicodemus realizes the good life is not in all these things I've achieved. They don't really matter as much anymore. This man had the good life. This man had the good life. He had what I was missing, right? And so whether Nicodemus is born again at this moment or when Jesus rises from the dead, Nicodemus gets it and realizes this is who 
as the good life. Brandon gave this uh, great question a couple weeks ago. Uh, and the question was, I want to get it right, so I'm just going to read it off of here. Um, the question was, if we believe Jesus plus nothing equals everything, or sorry, I want to get to that later. The question was, how much could God take away from us? How many good things could God take away from us before we start to question his love for us? How many things could God remove from our lives or withhold from us before we start to question whether he's really good and cares about us? And I heard that question, I'm like, oh, that's tough. Because I want to say, yeah, he can take away everything, but I really don't know. And I think it might not be very much until I would start to question whether he really cares for me. And then Brandon said, uh, if we truly believe Jesus plus nothing equals everything here at Keystone Church, then we should be able to say, God can take away everything, and I still have the good life. He can take away every good thing, and I still have the good life. I want to rephrase that question for this morning. I want to ask, how much are we willing to give away or risk because we found the good life in Jesus? Now, I want to be very clear on this. There's a form of us sacrificing something in order to gain something in return. That I can do things and make sacrifices in order that I might get something in return. Like thinking that if I do some good deeds, I'll get the good life. Thinking that if I serve at church, I'll get the good life. Right? There's a danger for us to sacrifice just to get the good life in return. See, the, the king coral, or sorry, the coral snake and the king carlet, scarlet snake look almost identical. Here's a picture of them. Maybe you can tell the difference, maybe not. One of them might kill you. The other one's harmless. If we sacrifice, hoping that God's going to give us the good life in return, it can kill us because we're just using him. But if we know that in Christ we already have the good life, then sacrificing is the most natural thing for us to do, to be willing to give up anything else that we've thought is good and important in this life. That's why Nicodemus is like, all these achievements I've got, I'll put them on the line because I found the good life in Christ, right? See, if we receive the good life, it should radically reshape our priorities. That's the final point this morning that I want to close with. If we receive the good life, it should reshape our priorities. And for Nicodemus, it does, right? No longer do I care about all these achievements. I care about this man and what he's done for me. This is found anywhere where because we found the good life in Christ, it reshapes our priorities. It's found, I would argue, in a group of students that go to Memphis for a week to sweat and serve in miserable conditions (laughs) and even pay some money to go. Like, I make them pay a little bit to go. Why would they do that? Because the good life's not just found in what will benefit me, making money, taking a vacation, as good as those things are. It's also found in me serving others right? Service over self. Why would a family from Keystone welcome in a foster child that puts the comfort and stability of their family on the line? Because the good life's not just in comfort. It's in compassion over comfort. Why would a friend risk uh, looking stupid and dumb to talk about his faith and the impact it's had with another person he knows? Because the good life's not found in man's praise. It's found in mission over man's praise. 
You see how when we find the good life in Christ, it starts to reshape our priorities. It should start to reshape our priorities. It should start to take us and say, okay, all these other things that I thought I needed for a good life, they're on the table now. And if God wants them and he wants me to risk them and sacrifice them, then I'll do it because the good life is in Christ and I don't need all these other things. My my question to kind of close with this morning is how has receiving the good life in Christ reshaped your priorities? If we say the good life is Jesus and what he's done for me, how has that reshaped your priorities? Or how is God even now calling you to reshape some of your priorities in your life because you know the good life isn't found in all these other things. It's found in Jesus. And so I can give up some of these other things. See, if, if we truly believe the good life is found in Christ, it should stop this endless chase for satisfaction for us running around to different things and make us satisfied in Christ. If we really believe the good life is found in Christ, then it should stop us needing all these other good things and demanding them from God and rather realize all we need is in Christ. If the good life is really found in Jesus, then we should be able to realize I don't have to control everything and in fact, I'll give up my control and I'll surrender to him despite how weak that makes me look. And if the good life is found in Jesus, then it's not about us compiling all these achievements. It's about us depending more and more and more on him. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I believe the life you put in the Bible, the the version of the good life you put in the Bible that's found in Christ is so radically different from the good life that our culture often identifies. And God, I, I think when we as Christians rise, the good life is in Christ, and I can give up these other things, tend to stick out more from the culture. And people see us, and, and they might see, what do they have that I'm missing? What's going on there? God, we also realize that we can't do anything to manufacture that life inside us. We can't take certain steps or do certain things to earn it. It has to be your gift to us. It has to be your spirit creating in us a love and a life that's supernatural. And so God, my prayer this morning is that you would do that. That your spirit would do what I can't do, what none of us could do, and would give us life in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.